Have you ever said or done something stupid that you thought was relatively minor, but it, it just stuck with you for, for a long, long time? Every once in a while, somebody would bring it up, mention that little thing, and you're like, oh, I'm never going to outlive this. Yeah, me too. There was a time more than a decade ago at our midweek service when I was trying to illustrate something, and I had in my mind this perfect diagram. And so I drew a circle, and then another bigger circle, and then another bigger circle, concentric circles. And it didn't work out well. The point I was trying to make was lost because it didn't make any sense, and yet I stuck with it. And I kept trying to alter it a little bit and fix it and make it work. And people just started laughing and laughing and laughing. And, and to this day, if I draw a circle on a whiteboard, there are, I, I would tell you there are people who weren't even there on that original day who will begin to jeer and heckle if they think I'm going to draw some concentric circles. But as we look at this passage in Acts, I think what we see is the kingdom of God going out in concentric circles from Jerusalem at the center, incrementally, as Jesus commanded and foretold and promised into a larger and larger area where the gospel is saturating these places and bringing in a great fruit, a great harvest. We saw last week, how it all began, that they were in Jerusalem. They'd been in Jerusalem continually, even though Jesus in Acts 1.8 said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And with the persecution of the church that started with the martyrdom of Stephen, the people began to scatter. And as they scattered, we saw that they continued to do exactly what it was that caused them to be persecuted in the first place, which is they proclaimed the gospel wherever they went. And as it kind of goes out and out and out, the book of Acts does what it always does, which is it gives a, a kind of a general statement and then zooms in to give us an example. And the example here is a guy named Philip, who is now going into Samaria, a certain town of Samaria, bringing the gospel message. Philip we had already met in chapter 6 with the calling of the seven, the first deacons, those who were taking charge of the ministry of waiting tables, providing food for widows, making sure that it was done equitably. Stephen, one of the seven, has now been killed, and Philip steps into his shoes. And he is not just a deacon, he is an evangelist. In fact, that's how he is, uh, from here on out, identified. One who will bring the gospel the message of Jesus Christ. And this is a bold move, going right into Samaria. You know the word Samaritan, right? When you hear that, you probably think, good, good Samaritan. You got to realize everybody in their circles, when they heard it, they thought bad. Samaritans, ugh. No, we want nothing to do with them. A very, very brief origin story of the Samaritans. You remember we talked about the Christian diaspora a couple weeks ago and last week, how, how this scattering of the people uh, took them out of one place and kind of put them all over the earth. Well, there's the Jewish diaspora, which was to the Jewish people a great tragedy. And it began in 722 B.C. when the uh, Assyrians came in. They conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and they took about half the people, maybe what they thought were the best people, and they scattered them all over their big Assyrian empire. 
Then they took a bunch of people from all over their big Assyrian empire of all different uh, groups and ethnicities and backgrounds and, and national heritage, and they dropped them into that same northern kingdom. The plan was they'll intermarry, they'll lose any sense of identity, and they will never turn and try and rebel against us. And it worked. They'd perfected this. So what happened was slowly, this northern kingdom, which is, we would say, ten tribes in the, in the north, became less and less a distinct group of people following God via his, his old covenant. In fact, then the, the southern kingdom in 586 is taken into Babylon in exile. They're there for 70 years. And when they come back, they find that those people living in the land are not their friends anymore, but their enemies. And from that moment on, it only gets worse and worse between the Jews and the Samaritans. So that John can basically just sum it up in John 4 by saying, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And we could say vice versa as well. They had nothing to do with one another. They had a shared heritage. Yes, they worshipped the same God. They read more, more or less the same books of Moses, although uh, they, they rejected, like the Sadducees, anything after the first five books of the Old Testament. But bad blood is often baddest amongst those who are very similar, is it not? And because they were so very similar and yet they had these important differences, it had gotten worse and worse when they were trying to rebuild the temple. Remember, as we, as we studied through Nehemiah, they're, trying to, they're, they're rebuilding the wall, and before that, the temple, they, they had to have a sword in their hand because what was going on, the Samaritans would come and attack them, like guerrilla attack style, and, and they had to be ready for it. And then a little later, they got their revenge because they, instead of worshiping in Jerusalem, the Samaritans said, we'll worship on Mount Gerizim, and they built their own temple there. And in uh, about 200 years before all this is going down, a group of, of Jewish People went and they tore down, burned down that temple. So there's just this bad blood keeps on going back and forth in this revenge cycle. The Samaritans were very much on their own. They were disdained as Jews by the Romans and hated by the Jews because of the ongoing conflict. And they hated them right back. And in the Gospel of Luke, we see that it was common when you had to travel from Galilee, which was a, a Jewish area, down to Judea, also a Jewish area, or vice versa, Samaria was between the two, and the ordinary thing to do would be to go around. You'd go around Samaria. That meant crossing the Jordan River and then crossing again, which is a hassle. But they went around anyway. Jesus even does this in the Gospels. It was just the ordinary route that one would take. If you could help it, you wouldn't go through Samaria. And you certainly, certainly wouldn't choose to go to Samaria. And of course, it went the other way as well. In Luke 9, a Samaritan village turned Jesus and his disciples away. Why? Because he was claiming to be the Messiah? No, because they were on their way to Jerusalem. They said, if you're on your way there, you're one of them. We want nothing. You just, nothing to do with you. Keep out. So, so you're on your way to Jerusalem. You can't come in. But here, Philip is on his way fleeing from Jerusalem. And it seems that they throw open the welcome gate and throw down the welcome mat, maybe out of spite. Oh, they rejected you? We'll, we'll take you. Happily, sure. Interesting how God and his sovereignty might even be able to use something like spite to take the gospel and bring it to the next level, the next concentric circle out. It's working, you guys. It's working just fine. Now, reaching out to Samaritans is not exactly new. Jesus did it. He did pass through Samaria on occasion. 
A very famous story about him with a woman at the well in Samaria where he spends two days in a particular village and many, many people come to believe in him. And he says to them outright, yeah, I'm the Messiah, which he almost never said when ministering in Galilee or Judea. And now Philip is doing the same thing. Such a a sharp contrast between perhaps Jonah, who was told, go to Assyria, go to Nineveh. And he says, no, I, I don't like those people. I hate them. I won't go. And he finally, he's forced to go, and he's still, all he wants to do is go there and declare, God's going to destroy you, and I'm going to watch. Philip, instead, out of a love for these people, goes into Samaria with a message that God wants to save you because he loves you. He's, he's showing us what it means to love your enemies, as Jesus commanded As he's there, he's preaching and he's doing signs and wonders. The description of the exorcisms is almost identical to the description of Jesus casting out demons. As they came out of him, they shriek in a loud voice. We see that he's doing these things by the same spirit that Jesus also did these same type of things. His unclean spirits were cast out. People were healed. And he's preaching the gospel. And and we might say, well, wait a minute. From kind of a strategic point of view, they've got a new target audience, a new, a new target demo, which is a, a foreign land and a different culture. Why are they doing essentially the same thing? Maybe we should tailor the message to them. Maybe we should change the way we, we do this, change it up a little bit. Now, they're keeping with this gospel message. Why Romans 1.16? It is the power of salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And it has been said that perhaps Samaritans occupy that ambiguous middle ground between Jew and Gentile. And here they are hearing the gospel. In verse 6 we read, The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had, who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were walked, so there was much joy in the city." Their own brothers had chased them out of Jerusalem, and now they are welcomed with open arms into the land of their long-time bitter rivals. And they listen with one accord, or I think the NIV says, without exception, they paid close attention to what Philip said. What a surprising turn of events. If you had asked these disciples six months earlier, who should we focus on? Who should we try and bring into our group to expand our influence? They would have had different answers. I think Levi, Matthew, probably would have said, the rich and powerful, you know, people who are movers and shakers. Simon the Zealot would have said, the most radical and extreme people. Peter would have said, the boldest people. James would have said, the most faithful to the law. But the one thing that would have been the common denominator amongst all of them, in unison, not Samaritans. Goes without saying, actually, not Samaritans. And yet here they are. I think of this when I hear of churches preferring one group over another as they reach out or as they design their service. We see churches even moving from from one neighborhood because it's changing into another where the sort of people that they want to reach are living. And perhaps here we we can increase our giving base and we can do more and we can be bigger and more influential. We, we read even as early as the New Testament in the, gospel, the, the epistle of James about churches giving preference to the rich, preferential treatment, because they have much. 
Well, the Samaritans were not their target demo, and yet they listened without exception. And as a result, there was great joy. And part of this great joy initially was that a very famous guy in their town, in their region, listened and believed and was even baptized. His name was Simon. We generally call him Simon Magus from the Latin, which means great. Uh, and, And Simon was a practitioner of black magic. And for that, he accepted not only payment, money, but also veneration. When we say magic, we mean witchcraft. We mean the occult, incantations and rituals, trying to manipulate the unseen world of gods and spirits, the sort of thing that is condemned throughout Scripture. And, of course, this kind of thing was very popular in Samaria. If maybe the leadership in Jerusalem was a little too strict, a little too intolerant of any dissent of any kind, the leadership in Samaria was too tolerant of anything and too loosey-goosey, which is a theological term. Oriental mysticism, as a result, was very common amongst the Samaritans, even those who worshipped the true God at Mount Gerizim, even those who were expecting a Messiah of sorts to come and save them. Remember, that's the, the two things that the woman at the well brings up, this temple thing which is stuck in everyone's craw for centuries now, and then the Messiah, he's going to come, and we'll see who's right and who's wrong, and Jesus says, I who sit before you am he. And so, yes, there is amongst these people a love of sorcery and a tolerance of of the magic arts and this sort of thing. Remember when, when the Pharisees said of Jesus this weird combination of accusations? He's a Samaritan and he has a demon. Well, they're thinking of this. Well, Samaritans are all into dark arts and, and demonic things and, and divination and all the sort of things that we see the Scriptures condemning. This guy Simon had a, a great audience. He had a lot of followers. He, he even wrote uh, kind of a, a false gospel, his own Scriptures for his own people. That's called the Great Announcement. And we see church fathers quoting from it. And he, he led many astray. In, in Matthew 24, 24, Jesus warned us, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonder so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. What a bunch of suckers, right? Can't imagine today anyone being led astray. I can't imagine anyone today thinking that, like, like the Samaritans who worshipped God and read the Scriptures and then at the same time followed after Simon with his sorcery in the church. Can you? This sort of thing has never been more popular. This buffet notion of Christianity. Oh, I've got the Bible. I've got the cross. I've got my salvation. I'm going to take a little of that. I'm going to take a little of that. I'm, going to take, I'm in control of all this. Where they contradict, I don't care, I'm a sophisticated person, so it doesn't really bother me. I bump into Christians all the time who believe in all sorts of superstitions and nonsense. Yes, I'm a a believer, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I read my horoscope every day, and that informs how I'm going to live my life. I wouldn't dream of catching a nap without my dream catcher over my bed. I'm, I'm going to take part in tarot card readings or other pagan activities, I've even run into people who say I'm a Christian, but I believe in, in karma and reincarnation. I get karma all the time. People who are otherwise believers. Oh yeah, karma will get you. Really? Is karma sovereign? Should I worship karma? And we look with this kind of snobbery, we look down at, at say, the, the 
Roman Catholic Church in, in Latin America and say, how can you have the Day of the Dead? You're, you've got crosses all over and you, and you worship Jesus, but then you have this idea that the dead come back on this particular... But look at us. We're willing to do the same thing. Simon, he was the guy who everyone looked to. Simon the Great. He was said to be a great power. And the great power was the Samaritan title for God. Make no mistake, this guy presents himself as a god, if not as God. Justin Martyr, one of the earliest church fathers, who was himself a Samaritan, said this, nearly all his countrymen revered Simon as the highest god. It is clear from the history of his movement that the great power was a Samaritan term for the supreme deity. And he goes on to write that, that some of the Samaritans had erected a statue to Simon bearing the inscription... Simone Deo Sanctu, which means to Simon, the holy God. And apparently he accepted this praise, like Herod. According to Irenaeus, he claimed to have appeared as the Messiah himself and to be God the Father, which of course is blasphemy. These are wild claims, but Simon was not a fringe guy. It wasn't like, remember in the 90s, Miss Cleo on TV? This is a fake accent, and I will do psychic reading. It's not, didn't, that slap it a bass. Uh, I can't get there. But you, you remember her, right? The gullible and uneducated would call at two bucks a minute and hear a psychic reading. And, and very few people, I didn't know anybody who called that number, or maybe a couple who called it for laughs. No, this says the least to the greatest were in awe of him. Those who had learning and influence and power and money and those who had none of those things. You start to see the connection here? Philip is doing signs and wonders, and without exception, they're amazed by him. Simon is doing signs and wonders and declaring himself a great power, and the highest and the lowest, the least and the greatest, are in awe of him. We see here signs and wonders from God and from Satan, and both are attractive to the crowds. Remember, Moses, when he did his wonders in Pharaoh's court, many of them were replicated by Janus and Jambres, the court sorcerers for Pharaoh. This is the sort of thing that makes us stop and say, be careful and test the spirits when it appears that something miraculous might be happening. Certainly don't close your mind to the idea that a perfect, holy, and omnipotent God could do something in our midst that is miraculous, but don't accept everything that you hear. Simon's great signs and wonders were done for money, and he kept all the glory for himself. Philip did his signs and wonders for free and gave all of the glory to God. Simon's wonders were the point. They said, look at how great I am. They were the end in and of itself. Philip's signs and wonders were a means to an end. His teaching was primary. And his signs and wonders only served to confirm what he was teaching. What was he teaching? We'll look at verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached good news, that's the gospel message, about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. It was the doctrine, not the miracles themselves, that converted people when they came across Philip's ministry. In verse 13, then, we find the very surprising news that even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
Okay, now what do you do? Well, you give them a big platform, right? Don't wait even a second to find out if this is a true conversion. Go, oh, we got a famous guy. Put him up on a pedestal and then wait for him inevitably to fall because you were unfair to begin with. That's what the church often does. Not what Philip and Peter and John do. See, when the apostles, verse 14, at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. I have to wonder, as John is walking into this Samaritan village, if he wasn't thinking about the time when he asked Jesus, can I call down fire from heaven to consume this Samaritan village? And so glad that Jesus did not let him do that, because now they are coming to faith in Samaria. And they arrive, perhaps they're thinking of them as half-Gentile, half-Jew, perhaps they're thinking of them as half-faithful, but now the leaders of the apostles have come to see for themselves and to inevitably, ultimately celebrate that these Samaritans have become part of the church, and they'll ultimately even lay hands on them and pray for them and see them receive the Holy Spirit. What's happening here is a shift from the first generation of church leaders, the apostles, to a second generation. And that's going to, it's rather early in the book of Acts. It's already almost complete. Who's going to be doing the action from here on out? The apostles' role sort of takes a back seat. They're praying. Yes, they're bearing witness. Yes, they'll ultimately all but one be martyred. But primarily what we see them doing is confirming the ministry of other people, validating and verifying what is being done in the name of Jesus Christ, as they do here. Peter and John not only accept Philip, they trust him, and they learn from him, and they follow his lead because they believe the Holy Spirit doesn't just work through him, through them, but through others in the church as well. You know, it's not just churches, but many kinds of organizations that can tend to fizzle out after that first generation of enthusiastic, charismatic leadership either retires or begins to die if they haven't groomed people and brought them up and prepared them to step into leadership. Empowering people to make decisions and, and to start initiatives handing over the reins, which is not something that happens all at once when I ride off into the sunset, but it should be happening continually throughout the leadership of a group of people. And Peter and John, they don't feel threatened by this second generation of Christian leaders. Even though they're doing the work that was actually foretold and given to them to do. Remember, Jesus said, you will be, you will be my witnesses. But they're looking around and saying the church is greater than just us. And we are witnessing now in Judea, in Samaria. Up next, the end of the world. We see here a beautiful picture. Remember, the Hellenists and the Hebraists were butting heads back in chapter 6. Now they're in harmony. And now they're in Samaria, where there are people who are even more different. And they're ministering to them and celebrating their faith. There had been an irreparable rift within the tribes of Israel. But when Peter and John come down, they are going to make sure there's not going to be such a rift within the church. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one gospel. There is one church. Christ does not have a harem. He has a bride. And so they are coming to make sure that as a separate group, they don't begin this competing separate Christian church like they sort of did with their separate Judaism, but rather that all of them are in communion 
with one another. We see here as well that even though they had been baptized in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles, Peter and John, lay hands on them and pray. And this is often called the Samaritan Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes, and we have to imagine that since they knew it, and Simon, as he watched, knew it, that there was some miraculous manifestation. Perhaps they spoke in tongues like they had on the day of Pentecost or did other miraculous signs, but something was visibly going on. This is a, not something that we see as a repeatable, ordinary pattern in the New Testament, by the way. That you get saved, you get baptized, and then later on you receive the Holy Spirit. There are traditions that do teach this. There is an argument to be made from Scripture, particularly, I think, this passage. It's not a silly teaching, but as Baptists, we don't believe it is true. We, we think what is happening here is that rather than being normative, this is the exception that kind of proves the rule. If, if receiving the Holy Spirit subsequent to water baptism is normative, the rest of the New Testament is conspicuously silent about it. We don't read Peter and Paul and James and John writing about it. We don't see it happening much throughout the New Testament. This simply disappears. What we believe is happening here is that this is a special confirmation for the apostles to see with their own eyes. This is for the benefit of Peter and John. As they say, can the, can the Samaritans really be followers of Christ? And they're going to see them receive the Holy Spirit. And they are going to be filled with thankfulness and joy at what they see. Notice that as he watches this unfold, Simon doesn't seem to be too interested in receiving the Spirit himself. Simon, the great one, the great power, he's interested in how much cash I could make if I could do what those guys just did. If I could be the go-to guy to impart the Holy Spirit. If people who followed me and were kind of in my circles in Samaria said, oh yeah, I got a Holy Spirit guy, and I could, I could charge as much as I want, it would be wonderful for my quote-unquote ministry, or whatever he might call it. And so he offers cash to St. Peter for the ability to do this. Shut up and take my money. I just want to be able to impart the Holy Spirit to whomever I want. He wanted to be a franchisee of God's power. Because he's been spending his life collecting magical abilities and conjurings and, and tricks to wow people. And I don't know about you, but when I read the New Testament, it's clear to me that all this isn't sleight of hand and, you know, he's not pulling a bunch of colored scarves out of his suit jacket going, ooh, where'd they come from? But there's demonic stuff going on. We're going to read later in the New Testament about a, a young girl who's able to predict the future because she's possessed by a demon. There, there are principalities and powers and spiritual darkness going on in the world. And he thinks he can add the Holy Spirit and the imparting of the Holy Spirit to his collection of things that he is able to do for money using the power of, of Satan. What blasphemy? He doesn't understand at all that the Holy Spirit is a gift not a commodity. That the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, not a power. The Holy Spirit is He, not it. Ironically, a week and a half ago, I was reading a, a commentary on this very passage, and a Bible scholar referred to the Holy Spirit as it. I'm sure it was just an accident. Editor missed it. 
But it shows that we can tend to think of ourselves as kind of being in control and all of this is just ritual and incantation so that I can control God. This is the way that Simon sees the divine. Simon offered money, and that tells us a few things. First, he recognized the superiority of what Peter and John had to impart to what he had to do. He knew that they had something far more real than whatever he had. Second, we see that though he believed in some sense, his heart was hard. When you read the the epistle of James, we read about those who believe, meaning mental assent, but they have no works. Why? Because that belief, that faith is dead. It isn't true saving faith. It's just, yeah, I guess that's true. But the heart hasn't been changed. They, They haven't been born again. Third, we see that his goal is still just to glorify himself. There's no new desire to glorify God. And when Peter responds, may your silver perish with you, It's hard to find a Bible translation that does justice just how harsh and emphatic a statement this is. It's in this weird thing called the present optative. It's the only place in the whole New Testament. So there's always some week in like fourth year Greek when they pull this thing out and brain tease you and you go, what the world is going on here? And from what I've read, perhaps the best translation would be to hell with you and your money. Not in a sense of a curse, not in a flippant way, but in a theologically accurate way. You want to buy the Holy Spirit? That's buying your own condemnation. That's blasphemy. You have no part in this ministry, some translations say. He, he literally, wouldn't said, you have no part in this logos, in this word, in this matter. I think he's saying you have no part in the gospel. Same words Jesus used in John 13 when he said, unless I wash you to Peter, you have no part in me. Right? Unless I wash you, you have no part. Yeah, Simon, we can see you have no part. Simon had been washed in the waters of baptism, but not in the blood of the Lamb. He is a false convert, it seems. We read back in Deuteronomy 29, the the source of this next comment. It it, it seems that, that there must have been some familiarity with the scriptures on the part of Simon. Otherwise, I wonder why Peter would bring this up. But he says to him, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He's quoting, or at least paraphrasing, back to the book of the law, Deuteronomy 29. You have seen their desolate things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Peter applies this to Simon in this moment. Later in Hebrews, a similar sentiment is found in Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. William Woolman, who's my favorite Methodist, now, my favorite living Methodist. He, he was writing on this passage, and he said we could learn from the way that Peter responds to this. Because he says, quote, All too often we resort to mushy affirmations of popular practices, saying, 
even though I disagree with some of Simon's techniques, he does draw a lot of people, and he does do a lot of good. Peter is very different. May your money perish with you. If someone were to say that today, I can see Christian leaders getting a quick, get my tweet in there. Oh, very unpastoral. Why would you talk? Jesus would never talk that way. Really? Jesus, who said to the Pharisees, every time you make a a convert, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are? Calling error, error. Calling dangerous teaching, dangerous. Speaking out against popular evils, it always brings a risk. But we are commanded to do it. Finally, after being rebuked, we see what the response is from Simon. He says, pray for me. Peter, pray for me that the things you've said will not happen. Please, please, I don't want that to happen. And he recognizes the power that Peter has and the insight that Peter has, and he is indeed afraid. And perhaps we see Simon truly repenting and embracing biblical faith right here before our eyes. Or perhaps he's just trying to manipulate Peter. But it seems that we want to take an example here to slow down when dealing with new converts. People who are interested, who who have listened to the faith, who have expressed that they perhaps would believe that, that this is starting to have an effect on them, but they come from a background, either in paganism or in, in the, the hardest, hardest atheism, or, or from a background that is simply without any notion of God and His perfections and our own sinfulness. If someone doesn't immediately overcome all of his old sin, we don't want to say, oh, well, they must just be like a false convert. This, this is somebody who, who was, you know, the, this... Seed was sown, and they sprouted up for a moment, and then they've disappeared and write them off. We might be tempted to think their repentance wasn't sincere, but I have seen people who have who've been struggling with the same old sins for a while, and the church abandons them, thinking, oh, never mind, that wasn't, that wasn't legitimate. But over time, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they're able to show that it was a legitimate conversion. And still, their brothers and sisters weren't there to help them. Although I would suggest, ultimately, we do have many reasons to believe that Simon was a false convert, and that even at the end of this passage, he was not saved. Simon should be a warning, I think, to anyone who thinks that simply going through the motions of a rite or ritual, or saying something, or speaking the right words, guarantees salvation. I mean, he believed and was baptized, we're told. People often say, well, I, I was baptized on this day, so I know. I know I'm one of God's. Without any worry that your life at the moment does not reflect God at all, does not reflect the Scriptures at all, does not reflect a, a respect for what God has created you to be and do and how you ought to live. I've even heard people speaking of, of extra-biblical things we've added on. Not baptism, but I walked an aisle, or I repeated a prayer, or I signed a card. And so I know that regardless of my absolute lack of fruit throughout the last 20 years, I must be saved. That's what the preacher told me. Be careful of these things. Even in his plea for prayer, we see that Simon simply wants to avoid punishment, not to be right with God. He was told, repent, Repent and God may yet forgive you. Repent, turn to God and pray for forgiveness. And instead, he says, I'm not going to do that. You, why don't you pray for me? I don't want to repent. I want to find an end round. I want to, I want to find a loophole. Passing the spiritual buck. 
I'll leave that to you. Have you ever done that? Pass the spiritual buck on to someone else? Has anyone ever done that to you? When you're in ministry, people often will. Got to toss it your way. Well, you're the pastor. Why don't you put in a good word for me? Why don't you take care of this? Why don't you pray for me? Remember, Pharaoh continually asked Moses to pray for him even while his heart was hardened and he had no intention of repenting. If you are in sin, you must repent. Simple thing to do. Jesus talks about the two who were in the temple praying. The tax collector looked down at the floor, would not look up at heaven, beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's repentance. We don't see that in the life of Simon. And I think we don't see it in many different people today, even those who would prominently call themselves Christians. It's an example from many decades ago when when, uh, Billy Graham's ministry was just starting out. There was a notorious gangster named Mickey Cohen. He went to one of uh, Graham's meetings, his revival meetings. He heard the gospel. He was uh, interested, very much like the people in this Samaritan village. He listened and he thought, hmm, I may want to do that. And so some people came and followed up and evangelized him and spoke to him in his home. And at one point, someone said to him, do you want this life, this life that's offered to you in Jesus Christ? And he said, yes, I do. And they prayed together. And the news of his conversion made a huge sensation and actually helped to buoy the ministry of of Billy Graham. And he became well known across the nation. But there was only one small problem. In Mickey Cohen's mind, that was the end of it. He'd sealed the deal, and now he was set. So he, he, nothing changed in his life. He went on being a gangster. And so a group of, of Christians who were concerned for his soul got together, got their affairs in order just in case things went badly, went to his home, said, Mickey, what's going on? You put your faith in Jesus, and you're still living this sinful life. And he became angry. He said, nobody told me I had to give up my friends, give up my business. He thought, hey, there's Christian athletes, there's Christian actors, there's Christian musicians, I'll be a Christian gangster. And they said, that's not the way it works. And of course, he fell away from the faith. Simon is said by later authors in church tradition to have been one of the great arch heretics, that he spread the Gnostic heresy through the church. I don't know about that, but I do know that his name has entered the lexicon. There's a word, simony. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary describes this as the buying or selling of a church office or ecclesiastical preferment. Here's some money, make me bishop. Here's some money, give me something in God's name. We look back throughout the ages in the church, selling salvation is perhaps the worst abuse of the church leading up to the Reformation. And today there are still many who would use the gospel to lift themselves up and make themselves rich instead of using the gospel to glorify God. James Boyce preached a sermon about simony in which he said, basically, if we think we can obtain the blessing of God on our work by raising enough money, we're guilty of the same sin as Simon Magus. We've committed simony, in a sense. In reality, being rich in cash and rich in things more often than not make us, makes us poor in spiritual things. Not poor in spirit like Jesus commanded, but lacking what is needed. It's buying influence. It's the kind of thing that flies in the face of the free gift of salvation. Now, of course, there are many people in many churches who have been blessed with material wealth, who give, 
that God has appointed for that work so that there can be a great ministry and many people can be helped and, and they can provide what is needed for the mission to be carried out. And I will say that I think many people in this church, some who have come and moved away over the years, some who are still here, some of the biggest givers and most generous people are the most humble and the most quiet and the most, don't you tell anybody that I did this. All the same, we need to be aware of how the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, of how you cannot serve two masters, and how when we start to think of the Holy Spirit or the gospel or the scriptures as commodities, we are in danger of going down this very same road. Notice finally in verse 25 that the apostles did not waste the opportunity as they traveled back toward Jerusalem. They preached their way all the way home, stopping in Samaritan village after Samaritan village. And that, that verse, verse 28, it's almost like a little microcosm of the book of Acts itself. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This whole passage is bookended by a statement about people, as they're going, preaching the gospel, which is the Great Commission. Here we see that they are not just preaching the gospel, all that Jesus did and taught. They're testifying Perhaps we might think of preaching as in formal settings like this, testifying in informal conversations with one another. And they're speaking the word of the Lord while they pass through. Their presence here is the result of persecution, but more than that, it's the result of God's sovereignty bringing about good from the jaws of what was meant for evil. As we, the church, look to become more and more a reflection of the community around us because we are reaching out to people who have not heard the name of Jesus, or if they did, they heard someone saying it as a four-letter curse word, who don't know that their sins have been paid for on the cross. Remember that God's name and God's spirit and all these things are holy things. They're not commodities. We don't, we don't have a target demo and we set aside and we say, okay, this is who we want to reach. We want to reach whoever God will put in our path. We want to reach them with truth. We want to show them that the gospel is true by the way he's changed our hearts. But the only thing that will change their hearts is to repent and believe. And as we take part in all of this, remember, God can save even a Simon. God can save even a Samaritan. God can save even a Zach. I could have said Sean, but he's not here. That would have been SSS, but you, know, you want to pick on the guy when he's not here. God can save. God does save. As we're going, don't get, your, don't get your mind set on, okay, this is who we need to reach. This is who I need to reach. Say, God, show me who you would bring into my path today. Show me who I could proclaim the gospel to or testify to or share the word of God with so that when I do, you will be glorified. I don't do it for my own great name like Simon. I do it for yours. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a story that is uh, perhaps a bit off-putting at the same time as being joyful. We thank you for the extending out into another level the, the gospel as we see Samaritans and Jews together proclaiming the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray for that kind of unity in the church today that we would not be fractured and segmented uh, by, by ethnic and, and uh, geographic and all the other different political things that divide people, but that we would be with one voice, the hands and feet and word of God, a letter of love to a world that is broken and hurting. Lord, we pray that we would not ever fall into the trap 
of thinking of these precious holy things as commodities to be bought and sold. That we would never think that in order to to have success in this mission, we have to raise a certain amount of money and that to do so means we don't need you. Lord, may we never fall into the sin of simony. May we remember that you are a God who saves freely. And Lord, may we share that message of free salvation with all who we have opportunity to share it with. In your holy name we pray. Amen.